My favorite movie line of all time. Dying ain't much of a living, boy. From the outlaw Josie Wells. We're going to talk to somebody tonight who makes a living when other people die. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. I want to thank everybody for joining us. I especially want to thank our guest, Muskogee County Coroner Buddy Brian. He uh, answered a call this morning and uh, about 10 o'clock and agreed at the last minute to come on the show. And I'm, I'm going to tell you the reason in just a second. But, Buddy, thanks for being here. Well, Chuck, you know I appreciate the opportunity to sit down and let the citizens of Columbus know a little bit more about the coroner's office. And the coroner's office is a fascinating place. I mean, as a reporter, we deal with it all the time. We originally had tonight scheduled to be uh, District Attorney Mark Jones. Uh, the district attorney uh, called this morning after agreeing last night then said he wouldn't be able to make it on vice of his attorneys. He's facing some legal matters that should go to trial next month. So that's what happened, and that's why we're kind of in the situation we're in. But I could not be happier to have you here because – you know, I've been dealing with you, and you've been dealing with me for a long time. Uh, tell people a little, a little bit about yourself. I know you're from Columbus, right? Yeah, Chuck. I, I was born in Blakely, Georgia, which is a small southern town. Just early, south of Columbus. early county. Early county. Uh, about two years old, we moved up to Columbus. My mother was a school teacher. My father worked out at Fort Benning. I attended local schools and just uh, lived in a moderate neighborhood. Uh, always had a roof over our head and food. When I was 14, I decided I wanted to go into the funeral business. And I don't know why, for what reason, but I was inspired to do so. I uh, started knocking on the doors, and finally one day I got an opportunity to start to work in the funeral home, and I worked there all through high school. And At 14? At I 14. wanted to be a sports writer. Who wants to go in the funeral business Well, at you know, we were coming home from uh, – eating at Davidson's Cafe downtown after church. and we were stopped Legendary at the, place. Yeah, we were stopped at the intersection with the lady in the fountain, Buena Vista Road and Winton Road Cross. Uh, we, I think we were in my mother's 1964 Buick. Uh, my grandmother and my sister and myself were in the back seat, uh, mother and father in the front seat. And I hear these sirens, and I look to the left, and here comes about three motorcycle policemen. Then there's this big black car and another big black car, and then there was a big black hearse, and other big black car and then a lot of cars following it. I asked my grandmother, so what is that, Nanny? She said, that's a funeral procession. And I thought, man, that dude driving that big, long black limousine looks like he might make a lot of money. <laughs> and I think that's when I got inspired. I thought that was very impressive. <laughs> and sure enough, I ended up uh, going into the funeral business at age 14. I'm 71 years old now, so I've been in the death industry my whole life. And I it is an industry. Death is an industry, isn't it? Well, you know, death and taxes, those are two fear, sure things. Uh, we don't know if the sun's going to come up, but we know we're going to get taxed to death, and we know we're going to die. And so at 14, what did you do? Sweep floors, well, that kind of Well, no, no. Actually, what happened was is I was asleep in bed, the phone rang, and um, uh, the funeral director called my dad and basically said that Buddy's been wearing us to death. And we got a call in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, do you think he might want to ride with us? So my father woke me up. I had a little blue suit that they bought me from Sears Roebuck. I had a little white shirt with a clip-on tie. And I got up and put it on. Daddy took me to the funeral home. And I, I rode in the hearse with the gentleman to uh, Birmingham. Uh, we made the removal. I, I can still remember the lady's name, and I can show you where she's buried. And we got we, on the way home, Chuck, I, I was a little bit curious, I guess. I kept looking in the back, thinking that that lady was going to get up and get me. But that didn't happen. Uh, we got back to the funeral home, and I watched him embalm the body. Well, from then on, it was game on. I spent the night, the rest of the night, in the dormitory. Uh, the next morning was Sunday, and my dad came and picked me up, went home, took a bath, put on my little suit again, and went back. Uh, I rode with the uh, flower truck driver. I, I toted flowers. We called them weeds back then, but, you know, it was the flowers. And, um, gosh, uh, you know, after that, I just stayed in the business. I was embalming bodies two weeks later. I had to stand on a Coca-Cola crate to reach the uh, body to do the embalming. That, you know, the average person doesn't understand that. It's hard to comprehend, you know, 
to me, there's so many taboos around death and things that I've dealt with my whole life. You know, death is is something a lot of us deal with. But for you, death became a way of life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been really blessed in my lifetime. Uh, I work in the industry. Um, God has granted me the right. I don't, I don't dream about death. I've never dreamed about death. I don't ponder over it. Uh, I can have a week-old baby in the morning. I can have a homicide at noon. I can have a suicide at 3 o'clock and a 90-year-old at 12 o'clock, and I can still go home and go to bed. I don't take it take it home with me, and I appreciate uh, that. That's a, I mean, that's an, I mean, talent, I guess. is. I mean, that's a, a skill set that, I mean, you, you compartmentalize very well. Well, it takes a special person to be in this position. And I think my tenure in the funeral business my whole life has structured me to be what I am today. And I thank God put me in this position. Uh, and I, I've come full circle. I strongly believe that. Uh, basically, it's all about compassion and, and caring about the families, but showing them the respect they deserve and showing the deceased the respect they deserve. Um, it's a position of trust, buddy. Well, absolutely. You know, we're we're making a decision that uh, changes a lot of people's lives. You know, we we have to determine the cause and manner of death, and it's not really something you can learn, you know, through books. Uh, it's being exposed to it and and having the experience and knowledge to uh, about the human body, uh, the circumstances, the medication, the medical conditions that the uh, people already have. Uh, we do a thorough job. We have very few. Uh, kickbacks, I call it a kickback, where somebody wants to question our decision. There's a lot of speculation. There's always that. But, you know, and that's the coroner's part, and I want to get into that. But I want to talk about the funeral home director because I grew up like you, not far from Blakely. I grew up in Eufaula. And one of the most, and still one of the most respected men in Eufaula, Alabama, is Mr. Sidney Chapman. Mister Mr. Sidney, you know, I mean, it seems like I'm going home. I'm 60 now. It seems like I'm going home more regularly for funerals than I have in the past. Friends, parents, even <coughs> friends are passing away. And, you know, and Mr. Sidney is, he's got to be in his mid-80s. His son, Chip, is running the business now. But Mr. Sidney, I see him. At, I was a pallbearer at a funeral um, two or three months ago, and Mr. Sidney was the one who was giving me my directions. And I just kind of... Walked out of Eufaula thinking what I think every time after one of those funerals. I mean, Mr. Sidney is one of the most respected guys in that town. It's like, who's going to bury Mr. Sidney when his time comes? And, you know, because in my life, he has been the constant when there has been a death. I mean, whether it's visitation or whatever. I mean, so in small places like, or even Columbus, I mean, Joe at Striffler Hamby. I mean, he's a, certainly somebody you see at just about every turn. How do these people that work in funeral homes and mortuaries kind of become part of the fabric of the community? Well, we're a special breed. Uh, not everybody can be in that industry. Um, it's a God-given thing, to be honest with you. It's in our blood. Um, people like Joe Kite and Tracy Fisher have been in the industry, gosh, their whole life. I, I can remember when Joe was, came to Columbus. I was fresh out of mortuary college. I remember when he came to work for Strifler Hamby. Uh, Tracy was already there. Uh, you look at Mr. Hamby. I mean, Mr. Hamby died in his 80s, and he was so well-respected, and the respect he showed the citizens of the people, the families that we service, it rubbed off on us. And, you know, we were true professionals. We are true professionals. So you worked with Joe yeah. Kite for a while. Joe, I mean... I mean, I keep telling Joe I want to write his book because Joe, I mean, Joe has an amazing story of what he's seen. I mean, you know, I'm sure Alan McMullen, I'm sure all these guys that have been in that industry a while have these stories that they can tell. I mean, what? It's a brotherhood. It's, it's, it and is. a sisterhood now, too. Well, man. and a sisterhood now. We, we do have females coming into the industry we should not have. Uh, I went to mortuary college straight out of high school. Um, Where'd you go to Mortuary College? It was uh, Gupton Jones up in uh, Atlanta. 
Which is a pretty well-known mortuary school. Well, yeah, the main school's out in Texas, and uh, I was to go to Nashville, Tennessee, and one of the environment fluid salesmen, Dan Flynn, came by the funeral home and chatting with me and said, uh, when are you going to school? I said, well, I'm going up to Nashville, and I'll be leaving in a couple of weeks. He said, well, you know, if you wait six months, you can go to Atlanta. Upton uh, Jones is going to put a school in up there. And I was excited. I said, sure, you know, Atlanta, you know, it's uh, 96 miles away, two-hour drive. So I waited and went to school. There were 24 people in my class, and we went to school at night. Um, I worked at H.M. Patterson at Sun Funeral Home when I was uh, first up there. Uh, they How many did, of those 24 were going back into a family business? A lot of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it is a family business. It is a family business. In fact, I tell people, well, I've been in the funeral business most all my life, and they ask me first thing, well, was it a family-owned business? Well, it was. Uh, D.A. Striffler started Striffler Hamby. Uh, Mr. Hemby was a young man in high school, and he was kind of like me. He knocked on the door and got a job, and then he eventually owned the, owned the place. But most of the time, it's family-oriented, um, generation after generation. In the early 90s, the big corporations started to take over. Service Corporation International, Stewart. Um, dignity, I think. Is Dignity a large it, corporation? Well, Dignity is uh, the slogan for Service Corporation International. And they bought Strickler Hamby in 1995. And I was an embalmer and funeral director, um, pretty happy-go-lucky. And one day, uh, after they bought us out, uh, some of the higher-ups came to Columbus, and they asked Tracy Fisher, well, can anybody here sell? And he said, well, Buddy Brian can sell. Sell an Eskimo snow. So I got the job as pre-need director, where I met with families to make, help them make pre-arrangements. Chuck, to me, that is the most important thing that somebody can do is make arrangements in advance. They don't have the emotions involved. They can think clearly. They can have the person with them that, you know, they're making the arrangements for or they're making them for themselves. They can ask questions and they can ponder over the uh, opportunities that they have. Uh, and I was very successful in that end of it. I still have people today that I'll go on a, a death call at night or during the day and they'll say, you did my mother and father's pre-arrangements in 1996 or 97 or whatever, and it just makes me proud to know that I helped that family and that here I am again helping that family. Because, you know, <coughs> let's talk about that because the pre the need to prearrange a funeral, because, one, you can get the input of the person that's going to be buried. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when that person dies, whether it's your mother, your father, your spouse, you know, if it's been prearranged, That's a huge headache you don't have to have. Absolutely. There's four things that I feel like that every family should do, and I preach this to families, and I do a lot of speaking at colleges and universities about death and dying. And one of the most important is prearrangement. Make arrangements in advance. Talk to your parents about it. Talk to your grandparents about it. Don't be afraid of the topic because it's going to happen just like you said. Uh, we're all going to die one day, so don't be afraid to talk to your parents or grandparents or sisters or brothers or even your children about it. That's one thing, pre-arrangements. Make sure you've got some pre-arrangements fi on file. It reduces the financial burden and the emotional you can, burden. You can lock in costs. And you can lock in costs. If you lock in the costs, it saves thousands of dollars. When I first went into the business, a full funeral with the casket, the vault, opening, closing grave, the organist, the singer, the flowers, $2,800. And I can remember when it was 36. It's 10 grand today. I remember when it was 42. Well, Chuck, it's even higher than that. It's about 14 or 15,000, and that's if you own the cemetery spaces. But getting back to what I was talking about, a will. Families need to have wills drawn up. If you die without a will, you're dying intestate, and that's going to tie everything up for months and months and months. Bank account will be tied up. Families can't pull money out to do the funeral. Families can't pull money out to pay the electric bill. You need to make sure there's a will in place and not die what we call intestate because then it's a, it's a real headache and it's a real burden. One of the other things that's vitally important to me is, of course, a living will. It's to let everyone know what your feelings and thoughts are if you were to be incapacitated. You're in a coma. You've had a stroke. You can't make decisions on your own. Uh, make sure you have a living will. Let people know, do you want hydration? Do you want a feeding tube? 
Um, do you want to go on life support? Do you want to go on life support? Or do you rather just do what we call DNR, do not resuscitate? And a lot of people have the DNR, do not resuscitate. And I think that's very important. And the fourth thing, Chuck, is the power of attorney. As somebody that you have trust and confidence in, make them your power of attorney. You can have a durable or a general power of attorney. Uh, and they both have a different uh, aspect in, in what you can and can't do. One's for health care. Uh, one's for signing documents or bank account, paying bills. But those are some vitally important documents. Those are some five, that's the four stages that I preach heavily. Why is it so hard, buddy, for us to talk candidly and openly about death and dying? Well, people, I don't say they're afraid of death or dying, but it is it is sort of a sacred um, unity. I don't know what word to use, but it's just something that a lot of people just don't want to talk about. Um, I, t- I speak freely about it, and I run into cases on a daily basis uh, I'm, I'm on a death call. We call it a signal 16, and one of the first things after I tell the family how sorry I am to be there, I always hug them and let them know that I'm there for them. Um, step aside, I pronounce the deceased, and um, I turn around to EMS and law enforcement and tell them the time of death and what I think the manner and cause of death is. Uh, 90% of the time we can determine that right on the spot. Uh, then I go back to the family, and one of the hardest questions you have to ask is, well, which funeral home do you want me to call to make a removal? Uh, a lot of times they don't know. I don't know anything about the funeral homes here. So we kind of instruct them. We don't lead them to one one or the other. We have a, a list, a card, and I show them the card. I tell them which funeral homes are Caucasian, which are African-American. Why but, is that segregated? Well, it just always has been and probably will always be, although now we're seeing a little bit more of a trend. But... Um, Caucasians have their way of doing uh, funeral arrangements and, and re- being remorseful. Um, African-American community have theirs, and we have to respect that. It's just no different than... It, it's interesting. I, just, I mean, and that, um, just that's an aside. But So you'll kind of look at that, you know, you, you'll, you'll steer people in the... In the in the direction of, to the funeral home. But, you know, a lot of people know where they're going to go, right? I mean, they'll say, hey, you know, go to McMullen or go to yeah, yeah. or go to Sconyers or go to right. yeah. Progressive. There, there's a percentage, that's for sure, and that's always a blessing to us because then we don't have to kind of help. But a lot of times people have, have moved here from out of town. They don't know any of these funeral homes. And one of the questions we'll ask them, well, are you going to have a traditional funeral with a visitation or are you going to have cremation? And if they say, well, you know, we've got cemeteries at Park Hill and we're going to do a, a traditional funeral, well, then that requires embalming. Embalming is not a state law or a requirement. But if you want to have a visitation um, where people come and pay their respects at the funeral home or wherever, um, it's mandatory that they be embalmed for preservation sanitation reasons. Cremate me. I mean, I've made well, I've made that decision that if you know if I get hit by a truck leaving here, I want to be cremated. I mean, I, I've told I've told those wishes to my family, which is probably very different from the rest of what my my McFarland family would do. But I mean, I've made that decision. Chuck, in 1994, I'd been in the funeral business since 1964, so 30 years, and I strongly believed in bombing and. Uh, visitation and the funeral because that was a way of life back then we only had maybe two or three cremations a year yeah. back in those days and i can remember um we would fight to who would take the body over to uh, the funeral home in macon georgia and watch the cremation because it was something unique to us and you know you wanted to experience it so in 94 they had to flood down in albany georgia and i volunteered for two weeks and went down there to help identify uh, bodies. There were 484, I think, bodies that floated, uh, caskets and vaults when the flood. Yeah, it was cemeteries that became unearthed. Yeah, right. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't people in downtown Albany that died. It was the all of a sudden their cemeteries yeah. just started uh, started. Why they bury you above ground in New Orleans? Yeah, that's right. But these um, this cemetery was right on the riverbank, <clears throat> so there were 480 something uh, caskets and vaults that floated. It was horrendous site but uh, I showed up and a lot of the volunteers were funeral directors and embalmers 
we were United Group, and they had tractor-trailer trucks, and each truck had a certain amount of caskets in it. And we had what was the, um, a transport team, and I was on it. And uh, we would go and pull the casket out of the back of the uh, air-conditioned uh, tractor-trailer truck, and I would escort the body. They had like 10 stations. Uh, you go to the first station, they take photographs of the casket. You go to the next station, they open the casket, take photographs. The next station, we pull the body out of the casket. Some of these people have been dead for years, right? 60, 60, 80 years, absolutely. Oh, wow. And when I was seeing that, my whole life changed. And I thought, what in the purpose of embalming? Well, I know what it is, you know, sanitation and preservation, and so the family can have their viewing and visitation. But I thought... Well, I'm going to be cremated. I've got cemetery spaces out at Park Hill that'll never be used. Uh, I had pre-arrangements that are paid for that'll never be used as far as a funeral goes. I'll be cremated. I think in life uh, we have a soul and a spirit. Uh, it's quite evident we all have a soul and a spirit. And at the time of death, that soul and spirit leaves the body, and basically all we're doing is disposing of the shell that it housed while it was on Earth. And I strongly believe that. I've, I've been in situations where I've almost felt the aura of a soul or a spirit leaving the body. It's kind of strange, but I've been in a situation where I actually felt something that I didn't know exactly what it was. But to me, I think that's, that's exactly what it was. And I try to encourage families to stay positive uh, when there is a death. I mean, you're seeing people now go back to the 19th century pine box buried on, in a hill. I mean, you're seeing some of that now, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, people, the cost has gotten so outrageous. Uh, uh, a few years ago, the percentage was about 57% of all people now were being cremated, especially what we call, um, what do they call them from up in New York when they go down to Miami and live, snowbirds. Uh, you know, a lot crem of cremation down in Florida is outrageous. I mean, it's like 99%. Oh, and even wow. locally, uh, a couple of the funeral homes locally have crematories on their own facility now. McMullen does, uh, Colonial Funeral Home in Phoenix City does, and a lot of folks are utilizing that. And we have a pauper program here in Columbus that I help promote to families that don't have insurance or indigent. And the pauper program, we have two opportunities. If you don't have insurance, we can bear you as a pauper at East Porterdale Cemetery at no cost to the family. Unmarked grave, right? Well, they're not supposed to be marked, but um, if somebody puts a marker down there, the city can't remove it. But that's neither here nor there. I don't want to go into that <laughs> okay. soapbox. But, um, yeah. I knew I'd done that story before. Yeah, that's right. So the other option is cremation. If the family will authorize us to cremate the body and sign the authorization paper, then we can cremate the body and they can buy the ashes back by paying the city $625 and take possession of the ashes and have a memorial service, bury them, scatter them, whatever they want to do with them. So it is an option for folks that so are indigent and, you know, they don't have the insurance. So cremation is 625 bucks. Yeah, that's what that's what the city ordinance states, yes. Okay. I want to shift gears here. I mean, this is fascinating to me because this is not something that you – talk about much in polite company but i mean it's something you really do need to you do need to talk about death sometimes um you have probably seen thousands and thousands of deaths yes in your experience and, and i hope i don't regret asking this question what's the worst way to die well, that's a good question. Now, a lot of people ask me, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And, gosh, you know, I, I can line a thousand different calls up on the table, and every one of them was the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, to me, uh, to burn up in a fire would be the most tragic, horrifying uh, thing ever. And we go, on, we go on calls where there's a house fire. I had a gentleman that uh, was a double amputee. And his house caught on fire. Well, he couldn't escape the house, so he burned up. Uh, the, the 
best part about that is normally they'll die from asphyxiation, smoke inhalation before the, before before the, the fire, flames. the flames. So they really, they're not burned up knowing that they're getting burned up, you know, and that's satisfying. You know, that helps the families kind of think about it a little bit when I tell them that, you know. How, how do you, when you know you're fixing to go into, I mean, you've been called by Columbus Fire and EMS or by the cops, by 911, and you know what you're about to walk into. How do you mentally prepare yourself on that drive over to wherever you're going, knowing what, I mean, you know what you're going to see when you walk into a fire death. Well, uh, it's a fire death, but let's go back. When the phone rings, we never know what we're walking into. That's I true. Mean, we asked dispatch, what did it come in as? Well, they can say a, a 9 echo 1, which is a cardiac arrest, or they can say a shooting, or they can say a possible suicide, or a hanging, or a drowning. So sometimes we do know. A lot of times we don't know. Uh, mentally, to prepare ourselves, we do it every day. Uh, sometimes we make anywhere from three to five death calls a day. Some days we go all day and all night without one. But uh, to mentally prepare ourselves, we're already mentally prepared. Uh, we've been trained and have the experience and knowledge and knowing that we're going to be compassionate to the family and we're going to investigate it uh, honestly and with integrity and we're going to have high morals when it comes to it. You, uh, you go in a house and a guy's got $4,000 worth of cash laying around. Uh, we're not uh, prone to take that money by any means. We're sworn to the state of Georgia. Well, you are, sometimes you're walking into a crime scene. Well, a lot of it, a lot of times there is a crime scene. Now, two things about this, uh, the detectives uh, are in charge of the crime scene. The actual, sorry about that. <laughs> That's uh, one of my deputies. She was down at the river today. We had a drowning. She's a, she has a question. And um, Well, you want to take a second and... and Dylan and I'll talk for a minute. Do you need to answer that? We no, I, it could be sort of private. Okay. You know, she could be asking me a question that you wouldn't want to have on air. Uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly. I, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. So I was going to allow you to walk out and do it, but I'm not, well, I'm not that good a reporter. Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm 24-7, and uh, I'm 365 days a year, and my deputies know they can call me if they have a question or a concern. Uh, there's one thing about it, I always have their back. I don't care what the circumstances are. Uh, if they're getting fussed at by, irritated, uh, next to Ken or whatever, my deputies are the best there is. And we are... Uh, tell, tell me who you, they are. I know who they are, but I'm going to let you name them. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really blessed to have the best uh, chief deputy coroner in the state of Georgia, and that's Freeman Worley, uh, Freeman Certified EMS. He's been with the city 35 years. He's been down at the coroner's office 20 of those years, and he's my mentor. He's forgot more about being a coroner than I'll ever know, and I still call him on occasion uh, to ask him a question, and he's Johnny on the spot. Now, I've had to cover his back two or three times. I don't mind telling you um, because he's like me. He's honest, and he's going to tell the truth, and he might piss somebody off, but we don't have to look over our shoulder. We're going to be honest with the people. Uh, we have Charles Newton. Charles has been down there about 18 years. Well, let me get back to Freeman. Freeman's retiring on me. He's retiring in April of next year. He's so excited, and I'm excited for him. He's had some health issues, and he's really battled through them. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, he, for, I mean, I hope he has a long, a long and uh, enjoyable retirement. Freeman has always been a, uh, a, a, a interesting, an interesting guy, and always been straight up. I mean. I got to know Freeman in the uh, well, uh, better than I than I had known him before during the Charles Hart death. Mm -hmm. Charles Hart was a resident at the Ralston who died yeah. of heat of of heat deal, and then that case ended up going to a Muskogee County State Court jury, and they awarded Mr. Hart's family one hundred and twenty five million dollars in a wrongful death suit. But they brought in it, it was probably. I won't get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It was probably the worst defense I've ever seen in a, in a civil lawsuit. The defense was he was going to die anyway. Oh, uh, well. And, and, I mean, we that all was a, die anyway. That was essentially, they were talking about his health issues, and that was essentially the defense. But they had brought in a medical examiner, paid him a lot of money, and Charlie Gower was the lawyer that won that case. 
And when he did his closing argument, Freeman was sitting in the courtroom. And Freeman had worked that case, had lived that case for probably two years. And uh, and uh, Charlie, Charlie, uh, it's not funny, but it is. Charlie said they paid this guy $25,000 or whatever. They paid this medical examiner to come down and testify. And he goes, that's more than half what Mr. Worley makes in an entire year. And you could see everybody in that jury just just came straight out up. It's like, whoa, he's made a point. And, you know, it's like, okay, here's this hardworking guy who's a coroner in Muskogee County, you know, making 50 grand or whatever, you know, and you got a guy who walked in for two days and he made it, he made half that. And I think that, I think that part of the argument struck the chord with some of those jurors. Well, it probably did, but let me tell you something. If it hadn't been for Chief Deputy Coroner Freeman Worley, that case never would have never gone to court, things of that nature. When Chief Coroner, I, when Chief Deputy Coroner Freeman Worley walked into that room and he walked over to the thermostat and he saw how hot it was in that room. It was 100 degrees. 100 degrees. Now, if it hadn't been for him and his professionalism and knowledge and experience, that might not have ever happened. Because they challenged his cause of death. Uh, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't question Freeman Worley. Freeman Worley says you died from asphyxiation or a heat stroke. You can, you can bet your money on that one. Inter- interesting. Yeah. Well, let's get back to this now. Charles has been with me. Charles uh, has been down there for quite some time. Uh, one thing about Charles, he worked in refrigeration with um, Win Dixie for years, so he can't smell anything. Now, when we have a decomp body, decomposition, you know, they've been in a house for three weeks, and, you know, it's, it's, a, nasty, it's a nasty scene, and it's a horrendous smell. Most policemen and EMS are outside when we have to go in. I can't, I can't smell a dead body. I mean, well, I Charles can't either, and so we try to send him on those calls. I don't tell, mind telling you. Uh, then we have Elizabeth Allison. Um, when I was elected in 2012, there was me and two deputies, and Chuck, I was – on call are working about 580 hours a month, and my deputies were working about 460, and we were we were, couldn't leave the county. We were afraid to go out to eat. We couldn't go out and cut grass. And it, for seven years, I begged the city council, please, please, please give me a third deputy. Let us have a little break. Let us have a little break. Well, uh, Evelyn Turner Pugh, who is deceased now, was a wonderful. Mr. Saul. Absolutely. Uh, she stood up for me, and she said, y'all, Buddy can't determine how many bodies he's going to have. We went the first year from 626 to 1,050 last year. So we've steadily increased. That's three a day, buddy. Yes, sir, it is, and that's we experience that. Um, But, you know, there's more transportation costs. There's more body bags. There's more this. There's more that. But the city uh, council don't want to increase my budget. They want to flatline me. They just don't understand the position and the cost involved and the stress. Well, Evelyn stood up and uh, gave a great speech for me, and they awarded me a third deputy coroner, and I was a happy guy. I was a really happy guy. And that, but that made everybody's life a little more doable. Uh, I mean, it took y'all off a seventy-hour week. Well, it really did. You know, you know, it's all about having a quality of life, and that's having a family life and a social life and a work life. And we were working all the time, but now it's it's a lot better. Um, we have a real good schedule and we work as a team. A lot of times if I'm on call and I get a second call and one of my other deputies will go out, I go out all the time on second calls. Um, you know, I'm the man with the plan. If, if, if it comes down to it, it's Buddy Bryan. He's the coroner. He's the one that's got to answer to it. Earlier you asked me a question I thought was a good question. Uh, tell me a little bit about what's the difference in a medical examiner and a coroner. Yeah. Well, uh, in the state coroner's of coroner's elected, right? Yeah, coroner is elected. Yes, sir. You're, so that means you're a politician. Well, I don't play politics. I don't even like politicians. Uh, but you have to get on the ballot, so you're a politician. Well, you know, I kiss babies and shake hands. Yes, I do that because uh, the main thing I use is the media. The media <laughs> is my friend, and I like the exposure, and I want to be in front of the media, and I want people to stop me. At That's the, why you do a lot of interviews. Cause exactly. You're, uh, one thing about me is I'm I'm going to tell it like it is. Whether they like it or not, I'm going to be honest and truthful about it. And the citizens respect Buddy Bryan. Uh, they call me Mr. Buddy. 
I can be at Publix or Walgreens or Walmart or anywhere, and people will come up to me. Uh, just yesterday, I was at the Mexican restaurant having a margarita. I was off. Let me put that in plain English. I was off yesterday. So I was having a margarita and a couple of tacos, and there were three African-American ladies sitting in a booth over. And I got there, and I went over and sat down with them. I said, hey, girls, and oh, I recognize you. You're Buddy Brian the car. And I said, yeah, I am. And I said, well, I just want to talk to you for a few minutes about the homicides that we're having. We had 26 the first year. Our that was t- nine years ago, right? Yeah, 19, I mean, 2013. And as of today, we've we've had 45. Last year, we had 44 the whole year, so we've already gone past what we had last year. So I started a conversation with them, but they were just crazy in love with Mr. Buddy. And I sat there and talked to them because they're human and I'm human, and I don't know, it just makes you feel good that, you know, they appreciate the work you do out here because we don't get the gratitude that we deserve a lot of times. Uh, the pat's on the back, but it means a lot to me. When well, you're dealing with people a lot of times during their worst hour. Well, you know, that's right. And, and you know, you look at these homicides right now, 45 Two, were you working this weekend? Yes, sir. Elizabeth had, let's see, let me think about it. Elizabeth had one that was the little 12-year-old boy that was shot. Just an innocent victim. And Is that difficult when you go to a crime scene and the victim is a kid? Well, that's the hardest thing, uh, Chuck, especially, you know, to me, uh, babies and children, small children, especially when there's been ne- neglect. Yeah, uh, and you see that. Yeah, I see that. We had a child drowned in a pool uh, here just a week or so ago, and to me, that's totally uncalled for. Um, those are the ones that get to me when people ask me, well, what gets you? What gets you? Well, it's a child, uh, an infant that's been um, abused, malnutrition, or shaking baby syndrome, things of that nature. But getting back to the... the Homicide. Well, the state of Georgia, the state of Georgia is, uh, has 159 counties. Yeah. Five of those counties fall under the medical director uh, yeah. up in Decatur, Georgia. Which is doctor, right? Oh, highly qualified, skilled uh, forensic pathologist, okay. uh, 16 to 20 years of school, extremely knowledgeable, and he has a big staff. And if we can't determine the cause and manner of death, we send them up and let the experts determine that cause and manner of death. All homicides have to go up. That's mandatory by state law so that if they catch the perpetrator, then they have what they need to prosecute them. So the other 154 counties are are coroners elect, and then the coroners choose their deputies. Uh, We serve a four-year term. Uh, I've been very fortunate. I'm in my ninth year, my third term, and I plan on being in this position for a long time as long as the citizens want me. As long as my health holds out, I'll be here to represent them because that's what I do. I speak for them. Uh, I'm there for them, and that's uh, one thing that's important to me. I love what I do. It's not the easiest job in the world, and fortunately, I run unopposed. Anybody wants to run against me, I, I think they'll be a fool. I don't think they have the opportunity to beat me. They better know a lot of people and have a lot of money. I got both those on my side as well, and I don't mind telling them. <laughs> that's, I'm loud and proud, I guess I can say, Chuck, but... God put me in this position. He's my pilot. and So you are a man of faith then? Oh, absolutely, Chuck. Absolutely. Born Baptist and raised could you Baptist. Do, could you do this job without faith? I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't have anybody on my staff that's not a Christian. I don't have anybody on my staff that, that doesn't pray. Um, so I don't know the answer to that question. They might could fake their way through it, but to be... Be a realist. You better believe in God. Let's go back to homicides. Yeah. Why do you think we're having so many? Well, times have changed. We're not a one-horse town anymore, Chuck. You know, we used to be, but now we're 206,000. We're the second largest city in the state. So we're subject to have a lot of deaths, and we're subject to have a lot of crime. But when our former mayor um, did away with the drug and gang task force, what it did was open the floodgate and allowed people from Atlanta with the gangs to come in or from wherever. And uh, it's it stopped what we had started as far as reducing the crime. Some will argue, though, that task force was had outlived its purpose and needed to be re, 
reinstituted in a different way. I mean, redone. But I, I, I get what you're saying. But you think, you know, of the 45 homicides, and I guess this probably is a police question more than you, but you're, you're seeing younger. You know, mm-hmm. I, it seems like it's uncommon now for the homicide victim not to be a teenager. Well, be, that, you know, if, they, if they're over the age of 20, it's like, uh, wow, this is strange. You know, for real. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're younger and younger. Um, you know, Chuck, you and I were brought up by families discipline. But we didn't. I mean, but we had fights. But we fought. You and I would throw punches at each other. We didn't pull out a gun and shoot each other. Well, and then we were best friends five minutes later. Yeah, I mean, and maybe that's part of the thing. I the 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 sheer... I don't think a lot of people realize the finality of a gunshot until it's too late. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, we used to come to a, to an argument with our fists, and now they come with guns, so don't come to a, a, a gunfight with your fist because you're going to lose every time. But um, even the guy that wins the gunfight loses because nine times out of ten, he's he or she's going to get caught, and they're going to end up in the Muskogee County Jail. Well, that's very true, too. And look how many um, families it affects. You know, the perpetrator, the killer, his family, and the, the deceased and his family, and then it spreads out. It's like a mushroom effect. It just And, I mean, please tell me a lot of what we're seeing are retaliatory killings. They are. We uh, And we can tell that if we have one on Saturday night, we just about bet we don't have one on Sunday. I'm not so for sure that the one we had Friday and Saturday weren't together. I mean, in a manner of speaking, yeah. I expected it. Let me put it that way. So when you got the call, the second call, you you thought a second call might be coming because they come in bunches for a reason. They do, absolutely. We had a little 12-year-old boy. Uh, then I had my 20-year-old. The next morning, Charles had a 19-year-old. Now, I'm not so sure, and it's not my it's not any, any of my business and not my investigation. That's the police's job. That's the police job, the homicide detectives. And they do a good job. They're real thorough in what they do, and I, I, I appreciate their help. Um, I'm not so sure that second person wasn't shot the night that my guy died. And he went home, and he started feeling like, man, I don't think I'm going to make it, so he goes to the hospital. I'm not so for sure that's not part of what happened with, with him. Uh, now, that's, that's interesting. I apologize to the family if I've said something wrong or out of place. I don't know, but I told you I didn't know. That's not that's not really any of my business or concern. But, you know, that's the thing about it is, you know, when a 12-year-old kid dies in a shootout that he wasn't involved in, that's a problem. That's a problem. That's uh, that's, that's. I mean, when anybody dies, that's a problem. I'm not diminishing well, I agree it. With that. I'm not diminishing it, but I'm just saying, you know, we've got a problem. We've well, got a very real problem. Mark, Mark Jones, our new district attorney, said it better than anybody on TV last night. I watched him, and he says, I thought that was an unwritten rule that we don't kill children. And it is, but it happened. And it was an accidental shooting, but it was still a homicide, regardless um, of the circumstance. It'll still be murder, though. When well, there'll still be a homicide. You know, there's there'll be a, murder charges when they if they even when they catch the person sure, who did absolutely. it. Absolutely, but let me tell you, if there's, uh, I think they found 24 shell casings on that scene. I don't know how many people were there, and I don't know how many people were shooting. And how can you pinpoint it on? Well, Chuck Williams did it, or Buddy Brian did it, or whoever. Do you see a lot more shell casings? When I mean, used to you go and there may be two or three. Oh, absolutely. But now the markers that the police detectives use, to, you know, the little yellow markers, mm-hmm. it's not uncommon to be in the 30s. I've been at ones when you, you know, and they're numbered one, two, three. And I've seen 36, 37, 38. Oh, absolutely. I've walked on a scene at night and I have to carry a flashlight and make sure I don't step on any of the cartridges. It's like you're walking through a minefield. Of them, but you know, it's the automatic guns with the extended um, cartridges and things of that nature. Or the so they're just pumping bullets into the air. Into and you know what, Chuck? If you've ever shot a pistol, it's hard to hit somebody with a pistol. I can shoot a pistol at that wall right there and not hit it. It's it's just it takes a unique skill. Uh, so these people are randomly shooting. And but if you got automatic 
or semi-automatic or an automatic weapon, yeah. then all you can do, you, you got a pretty good shot if you spray it. Well, yeah, you're just spraying, that's for sure. Um, the last, uh, not the last victim, but the one I had uh, shot nine times. Yeah. Think most, about that for a second. Most time it's one or two. Um, but you know, that's that's pretty bad. Wanna to touch one more thing. I mean I mean these are not easy to, topics to broach, but one of the things your office does is suicides. Mm -hmm. We have a suicide policy here at WRBL where we don't report suicide. Sometimes we may get out on a scene mm -hmm. and say there's a death investigation, then quickly realize through mm -hmm. you or somebody else, hey, this is not a homicide. It's not a murder. It's a suicide. And, you know, we'll kind of shift gears quickly and say, you know, death investigation long before we have a name or anything. Mm -hmm. In most cases, every now and then it you do get it to a point where it becomes a suicide after the name's out, but that's very rare. We, But our policy is not to report them. And, you know, and I get that. I fully understand it. But by not reporting them, people don't realize the sheer volume of suicides that you, your office deals with. I mean, how many do you deal with in a, in a, in a month? You know, uh, and that's a real good question, Chuck. Most people associate us with homicides. Well, if you heard my statement just a little bit ago we did a thousand and fifty death investigations last year now only 44 of those were homicides so that leaves 106 i mean a thousand and six we had to investigate that weren't homicides Nat some of those could be natural causes oh, natural causes you got homicides suicides accidental deaths natural and undetermined so on your suicide side we'll see anywhere from 55 60 65 a year um, and it ranges. Uh, we're seeing more and more active duty uh, soldiers committing suicide. We're seeing now uh, COVID um, people committing suicide. What we're seeing a lot of is elderly people committing suicide. If they were married to somebody for 50 or 60 years and they died from cancer, uh, they'll commit suicide. <coughs> and we're seeing a lot of younger po folks committing suicide as well. So 60 people is, I mean, that's... You know that's, that's a, substantial. So that's a real number. That's more more. That's more than the number. Of, so the suicide total in Muskogee County is greater than the homicide total. It is, yes, sir. It is, and it comes in a various uh, various forms. Uh, when we get called out, you know, if it's a suicide, we we sort of almost never know in advance what it's going to be. It could be a hanging. Uh, yeah, and I, I just, I've I, even I've even had. Uh, I don't even want to go there. Let's just let's. I I, oh, okay. I, I get it. Yeah. I mean, I think on that one, I think I think we all know there are a lot of different pe ways that people choose, and I, I want to be careful with that. But I mean, yeah, I okay. do. But I do know that suicide is. I mean, it's you know. I mean, well, a lot of it has to do with depression, and we we asked the family, well, what was going on in his life? Well, he was just extremely depressed things of that nature. So a lot of it is that. Are most suicides men? Uh, yeah, I, I think I could attest to that. Yeah, most of them are men. Are, mm -hmm. Yeah, very few women commit suicide. That you, your office works? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just a handful. Um, and very rarely will a woman shoot themselves. That's, that's interesting. I've only had a couple of, of females that shot themselves. Yeah, that's... It, it, let's get to accidental deaths. I mean, man, we have a rash of accidental deaths. Had one this afternoon. We had a drowning. Well, I don't think the guy jumped in the river with the intention of drowning himself. Um, it was accidental death. I had one just uh, a month or so ago. People don't thing. realize that even though the body may float up on the Phoenix City side like the one did today, if they die in that river, they've died in Georgia. Correct? That's it. Yes, sir. Columbus, Georgia. The Georgia owns that river. Um, and it's our responsibility to take possession of the body. Now, Arthur Sumbry was on the scene today, and we talked to him. Um, of course, it was our body, and he understands that. That's interesting. That's, that's, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that. I mean, I tell you what, that's, I mean, we've almost done an hour, buddy, which is, This, I knew it was going to be easy, but I also knew it was going to be a hard hour because, I mean, 
I'm like most people. I don't like talking about death. I mean, you know, I don't like working death cases. I don't like covering murder trials. I'll do it, and I'm, I've gotten to where I'm pretty proficient at it. But I, I hate going to murder scenes. I, I mean, I hate it. I mean, I just don't like it. And but it's a part of my job that I must mm-hmm. do. And I mean, and I'm, I'm not alone. I'm, you know, a lot of people don't like, don't want to talk about it. But one of the things you said early in this interview is you encourage people when it comes to their family to talk about death and dying before it's too late. Absolutely. Let's reiterate that. That's kind of the way we'll end this. So. Yeah, I, like I said, I've helped thousands of people make pre-arrangements, and I still to this day get calls from families that I helped. And thank you so much. That meant so much to us to have all this taken care of. You make smarter decisions financially uh, as well. You don't have the mo- emotions involved when you're in that selection room, selecting the casket, wanting to buy the best for Mama, the best for Daddy. You know, you're making good, uh, sensible decisions. But not only that, it's finding out what their wishes are. Um, and I've gone on death scenes before, and I said, well, which funeral home would you like for me to call? Well, I have no idea. I didn't know what Mama wanted to do. I didn't know she wanted to be cremated. She wanted to be embalmed and have a funeral. That's frustrating for y'all, but it's also got to be just excruciatingly painful for the people you're asking those questions. Well, and, and you know, we're there for an instant answer. You know, yeah. we need to know so we can get the body out of the house. And it's got to be embarrassing a little bit, too. Hey, I... I should know this, but I don't know this. Well, and it is. And, and of course, they're emotional at the time. And it's not something that you want to just directly, you know, get involved with. I kind of work my way into it. I, You know, I'm compassionate and caring and considerate of their emotions, so I work my way into that. But that's one question that's the hardest one to ask is, which funeral home do you want us to call? And at that time, a lot of people just break down. Because that becomes a very real thing. Yeah, that's and then... Yeah, and then, you know, on the other hand, they say, well, let's call McMullen or let's call Stripper Hamby or let's call Colonial or Sconyers or, or Progressive because uh, Mama made prearrangements. I said, that's a wonderful thing. Thank you so much. That's the best thing your mother could have done for you, honestly. I appreciate you having me on the show. Well, we're to a point now. We've got a couple more things to wrap up. I did not tell you this piece of it, so this is going to be fascinating. I call this the turn the tables piece of the podcast. And I've done it with all, what, 20, what have we done? 23 shows, Dylan? Dylan Hansen, our director. and I think. Wait, yeah, yeah, today's 23, remember, because we were putting the numbers earlier. 23rd show, so we've built quite a library. Um, It's called Turn the Tables. You get to ask me a question. Uh, Chuck, I've been knowing you a long time, and I don't want to embarrass you in front of your family. <laughs> please do, please do. Friends. No, no. <laughs> I'm <laughs> trusting you, buddy. Okay, well, let me ask you this question. Uh, what did you think of that uh, pimped-out 1965 GTO that I pulled up in today that I bought myself? Uh, okay, so I'll go, okay, yeah, here's see. the story. I, for my answer to your question is I loved it. It's a... Uh, Buddy, your first car was a 65 GTO. Absolutely. And I went out to get you a few minutes ago in the parking lot, and there is this pristine 65 GTO. It's a, it's a cranberry color. Uh, it is a good-looking ride, but you've told your age by that. But uh, it's okay. I mean, but what made you go buy that car? Well, you know what? Uh be honest with you, Chuck, uh, you have to set goals in life. Um, people don't know this, but I work three jobs. I'm the coroner primarily. I do uh, insurance claim adjusting on my days off, and I embalm bodies on my days off, or even if I'm duty. But I work three jobs. So when I started doing insurance claim adjusting, I set myself a goal. And I said, I want to buy myself a 1965 GTO, just like I had when I was 16 years old. Um, and I started saving money, and I worked really hard to earn that GTO. And I looked for two years. I finally found one. My son texted me at 12.15 one night and said, Dad, I found the car. And sure enough, it was exactly like mine, same color, same, same everything. Uh, I called the guy the next day, and I told him I'm going to buy that car. And I met him the next day and uh, paid him most of the money, and then I went back Sunday and picked it up and drove it back to Columbus. Where'd you get it? Uh, up in Conyers, Georgia. So you bought it in Atlanta, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you know, I guess 
a 71-year-old corner's entitled to a midlife crisis. Yeah, well, you that's know. That's a midlife crisis. You car. know, I see these guys driving around in little convertible sports cars. Well, they got a problem. <laughs> yeah, they, they really have a, they have a <laughs> problem. Uh, I don't have a problem. Uh, you, you, know, got a, you got a 65 Cranberry GTO. Yeah, absolutely. And I bought it to cruise around a little bit and to go to car shows. And it would probably be the only habit I actually ever have. But uh, Is funny, that your hobby? Yeah, funny story. Let me tell you, my son's a master mechanic. His name's Chris Bryan, and he's a master mechanic. He's a whiz. So he came and picked up the car today. I've got him on my insurance. Uh, And he left my house uh, uh, two blocks away. He kind of rolled through a stop sign. (laughs) Please pull him over. (laughs) And they walked up to the car. It was actually the sheriff's department. And uh, he said, hey, I'm Chris Bryan. My daddy's the coroner, Buddy Bryan. Oh, yeah, we know Buddy. Man, we love this car. Gave him a ticket. No, uh, they gave him a warning, but... uh, they looked around at the car and uh, let him go. So I got real tickled because back when I was 16 years old, and, man, you know, I, I could stack tickets up to wallpaper wall, but I won't and be doing that now. Yeah, your your foot will get heavy on that accelerator. Yeah, it's got three deuces, and it's full of horsepower, but I'm uh-huh. older, and I, you know. You know what three deuces is, man? Okay, you got to explain for Dylan here what three deuces is. Well, your carburation system, it can be a four-barrel carburetor. It can be three deuces, three two-barrel carburetors. So instead of having four, uh, you got six, basically two. So when you punch it, it sucks all that air in and that gas in, and it just kicks it. So. Oh, yeah, it must be, like, crazy good for horse- for horsepower, right? Yeah, listen. Yeah. You know, when I've I been trying to, like, look up car stuff because I'm looking at buying a Subaru BRZ right now. And so, <laughs> I don't know anything about cars, but all I know is, so this car only has 250 horsepower, so I need to turbocharge it. So I'm, like, looking at, like, all this stuff, because I don't want to, like, you need to make a bad investment. You need to go out in the parking lot and look at this GTO. Yeah, you might change your mind. We get through <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you might want a 65 GTO. Well, buddy, thank you for joining well, thank us. You, this Chuck. has been a, This has been an interesting hour. I'm uh, let's, We'll see if we both have jobs tomorrow. Well, uh, hey, listen, <laughs> I'm elected. I can't get fired. I can't. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Well, you can too, but it takes four years to uh, fire you. Hey, listen, it take the governor to fire me. That's who I answer to. Yeah, I mean the coroner. Yeah, I mean that's coroner's a very powerful position. People yeah. don't realize the power that the coroner does have. It's a it's a it's a constitutional office that the state has granted a lot of authority into. Absolutely. Well, they say yeah. that the coroner can only the only man that can arrest the sheriff. sheriff. Uh, you so know, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not about to. Uh, arrest my uh, friend Greg Countryman because I endorsed him, but I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. I don't flaunt my power, but if it's necessary, I will stand up for uh, me um, and my deputies. Well, I, hope, I mean, I'm sure we'll be running into each other somewhere down the road. We'll hit the point now. Dylan, drum roll, please. We now have the Chuck Williams Show and the other podcast. The other shows at the WRBL studio, which is Faces of Faith with Phil Scoggins, the Bob Jeswell Show, and On Your Sideline with our sports guys, those shows are now on Mid-Dillard. It's all you, baby. Yep. All right. So all of the shows are officially on Apple, Spotify, and they're on iHeart. Um, we know those are some of the like most used ones. We're, we were going to do Audible originally. I'm not like ashamed to say this, but... Um, we, d- we decided not to because of like some small stuff. We may down the line go back to it, but basically all the catalogs are up on Spotify and Apple. Um, so if anyone wants to go check it out, I know this has been a very long thing. We've, we've been talking about this for like, I want to say a few months now, but you know, things get done slowly around here sometimes. And that was one of the things. But it's done. It's, it's done. over. We are tickled to death. Go to Spotify, go to um, Apple. Apple and go to. Our- I think they're on Google too. But okay. We didn't put that up there. But that these podcasts are free downloads for you, and you can get the whole library. If you like the show with Buddy tonight, go back and look at other other ones. You can listen to those as well. And then we get to the social media aspect yep. of this. Uh, you can follow me at Chuck Williams on in Twitter on Twitter. Speaking of which, I better see you retweet the the, the announcement. Oh, I will. <laughs> is, it, is it out now? It is out. It is out. Oh, there's also a cool video with it too, right? Yes, there is. That I spent all day editing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to sit down and watch. I watched it in a rush a few minutes ago, and then uh, Facebook Chuck Williams WRBL, and on Instagram Chuck Williams zero nine nine nine. We'll be back next week. Uh, good Lord willing, the creek don't rise. Um, 
and uh, we'll have another guest. And remember, this show is the Chuck Williams show, but it ain't about Chuck Williams. It's about the people we talk to. It's their stories. It's them that I want to hear from. So, you know, we will continue to try to bring guests like Buddy and others that we've had in this string that will share their stories with us and have a conversation. Have a great week, and we hope to see you back on the Chuck Williams Show next week.